please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. You can find the full passage, and we will cover all those verses there listed. Uh, you can find it on page 921 and then on to 922 in your pew Bible. I do have a portion I will read on the insert. I would like to also, to my fellow Irishmen, say happy St. Patrick's Day. I am one-third Irish, I have you know, and I will be eating corned beef and cabbage after this service. Patrick was a missionary in the 5th century. Um, It's really more of a heritage holiday anymore, uh, but it certainly uh, parallels some aspect of what we have come to in the text, that is the missionary endeavors of Paul. Um, You have Paul and Barnabas. Now, you might notice at the beginning of chapter 13, it was was Barnabas and Saul. Halfway through the chapter, after the harrowing confrontation between these two men and Elimas, the sorcerer, who is trying to sway Sergius Paulus, the the proconsul, the governor of the area, away from the Christian faith, when Paul got in Elimas's face, he kind of took over at that point as the key figure. And now, here we are in the middle of chapter 13, and from this point forward, it's Paul and Barnabas. And this is for good reason. We'll see this uh, really uh, primary role he takes in missions, especially through these three journeys. We're in the midst of one of these now. And you remember that they started out, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, the gospel writer Mark, Uh, But Mark leaves. We'll cover that a little bit in the passage. And this is an issue that comes back um, in the missionary journeys that will come in the future. Mark's leaving out in this trip. So now we come to the place where they are leaving the island of Cyprus, which is just off the west coast of Israel and then Antioch up in Syria, modern Syria. Um, Cyprus is that big island just uh, below Turkey, modern Turkey now. Um, But they sailed across to Cyprus preached there, had that, that confrontation I just mentioned. Then they sail across the Mediterranean quite a distance to get back to the mainland, but only now west and north of where they were, and it's Galatia. That's the state of Galatia, the province or area of Galatia, to which later he would write the Galatian book. In fact, the first book he writes is most likely to that region that he now enters, and he stops at some cities in Galatia. One is another one called Antioch. Uh, not to be confused, uh, there, was an, uh, there was a governor 300 years before this time, Antiochus, a Greek uh, general actually, In a couple different cities are named after Antiochus, the one where the strong church that sent Paul and Barnabas was in Syria, and then this one that we are introduced to today, Antioch in Pisidia, Pisidia or the Poseidon Antioch as it's called. Um, you could look in your Bible maps for this, it's Really interesting stuff, actually, when you see the geography, how far they traveled, and the way they had to travel. So we come to the passage now. They're in Antioch, Poseidia, and there they are going to the synagogue like normal to engage the, engage the people there, and they're asked to bring a word of exhortation. Now, taking up from that point, verse 16 will be the beginning of our scripture reading. Verse 16 of Acts 13 I will begin there and read to verse 39. But again, have your Bibles ready or your electronic versions, whatever you have, to follow through as we walk through this amazing account. This is God's Word. 
So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Sorry, I got lost my place. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of, them, of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we approach your word with anticipation. We look for your guidance. And we need your spirit for that guidance, that we might know Christ more through your word and be better prepared for life and for the mission that you have for us. Please encourage us with this account of Paul and Barnabas preaching 
Help all of us to have a greater love for Christ as a result of this encounter with your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I've been fighting off wearing glasses in the pulpit. And so I have my iPad turned up really big. And if I hit the button wrong, it goes to the side page and it goes to the middle of the sermon. Now, you might have liked that because it would have been over in 15 minutes. But I, I might just have to break down and wear some glasses when I'm reading the Bible from now on, at least in the pulpit. Uh, pray for me. This is a difficult transition. Uh, at any rate, uh, we are in a, an amazing passage because it's a model sermon. I mean, there are many model sermons in the book of Acts. In fact, part of the reason for the book of Acts is to record the essence of those sermons. They were no doubt longer than what we have here, but Luke, the careful historian, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is basically summing up the sermons. And we'll notice that the first sermon Peter gives is very similar. The kernel of it, Christ, is always the same. Now, when he's talking to the Jews, he builds up uh, an historic context they would have known. Uh, Peter does this twice early in Acts. Then Stephen, before he's stoned, does something similar. Then we have Paul in his sermons, this one especially. Uh, the order, the style of it, it's really helpful for us. And I think there are two ways in which we should study this as Christians reading the book of Acts. I think the first way for us uh, to approach this is to listen to the content of the sermon. That is certainly God's intention. It's not just a recording of some speech given. It's a timeless message that we need to hear again and again and again. Some of you may have grown up in the church and you could be sitting here listening to the gospel week after week. Something about this passage is realized you will not believe until God gives you belief. Just sitting here doesn't mean that you are a believer. Uh, it could, you might be inoculated to, to some degree because of whatever reason. It's natural that we would reject this. It takes the supernatural to give you faith in Christ. So it should be uh, preached over and over again, this message that Paul gives. So we listen to it um, as believers who want to grow in their understanding and maybe as those who are asking questions and want to know we'll find the answers there. In any case, it takes the Spirit of God to enliven us to Him. But He uses the Word of God for this purpose. So we look at it in this way. But also, another way, it just gives us a reminder of what ought to always be the essence of our message. It's so easy for every church and every generation to get off focus, um, to get caught up in some issue of the day to the point where we're not clearly expressing the timeless gospel. In this sermon that we have before us encourages us about the essence of the message, about preaching Christ in all the ramifications, all that we can think about related to God because of what is revealed here. Now, the passage breaks down pretty plainly. I know it's a long section, but it really is best taken this way, to gather the full import of this sermon. The first part is an historical setting that's given by the apostle, and he does so from the Old Testament. He's in a synagogue when he's giving the sermon, so they're mostly Jews there, many of which have been Jewish in name, and so they think they're chosen because they're Jewish. Uh, in reality, it's always been you have to trust in Messiah, looking forward to Messiah in the Old Testament period, and now Messiah has come and finished his work, and now they are called to remember how God has brought the Messiah. They have a privilege because the Messiah has come through Israel, but many still do not believe. They're as stiff-necked as their forefathers were about the gospel itself. So here he is in the synagogue, and he's going to lay the historic background, especially for this Jewish, primarily Jewish audience. Then he goes right to the substance of the matter, the person of Christ. 
after displaying the person of Christ and his finished work, he makes an appeal to the people to respond. He also warns those who reject it. In the last section, it gives us a description of the responses, the reaction of the people having heard this sermon from Paul. Now, let's go to the historic setting that he builds up. It's a beautiful overview, a very quick overview of the Old Testament um, on some essential points. Look at verse 13. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that's on Cyprus, and came to Pergia and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark, that's who we're talking about. I mentioned him earlier. We don't know why he left. Some scholars think maybe it was just the whole thing was too hard on him. It was rougher than he thought it would be. The travel, the confrontations with others, um, he just got scared or got nervous and left. Could be that he witnessed some serious sickness. We know that Paul suffered a great sickness in transit. Later when he writes the book to the Galatians, um, he refers to coming to them in great sickness. So something happened there. Maybe that shook him up. It could just be as simple as that his cousin wasn't leading any longer. It was Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas. At any rate, John Mark leaves at this point when they reach the mainland, and then Paul and Barnabas go further to Antioch of Poseidon. Back to the text, verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Poseidon. The second part of verse 14, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. This is a common practice. They don't know the place well. Go to the place where they're talking about the scripture first and then branch out from there. And this is what they do. It's a strategy we see often. They end up talking to more than just the people in the synagogues, but that's a great starting place. Verse 15, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, why would they just pick Paul and Barnabas out like this? It could be just what they were wearing showed themselves to be rabbis. Certainly, Paul would have had some of his old garb on that would show he was a teacher. Um, Maybe Barnabas, being a Levite, would have some other marking that would show that they were learned, that they had something uh, to share. Maybe someone met them before the service and got a little inkling of who they were and then mentioned to the leaders of the synagogue. The synagogue was, was led by a, a group of elders, and they would oversee who would teach and preach at different times. The order of service was simple, but it was long. I know this service may seem long to you, but it's not nearly as long as the synagogue services. They would have at least a good hour of reading. We know by the amount of text they would have had to read. They read far slower than I do, so it would have taken them some time. And this being the book in the Pentateuch first, the first five books of the Bible, then they would go to one of the prophets, usually tying them together in some way where one shows the, the outworking of some aspect of God's law. And then someone would get up and give an exposition of the text that was just read. That would be the normal order of worship in a synagogue. In this case, we see that they read the law and the prophets, but then they turn to Paul and Barnabas, these guests, and they say, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, You never ask a preacher to say a word if you don't expect a sermon. And this is what we have, verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So mostly Jews, but men who fear God, that lingo that's used with Gentiles who are interested and are converting to Judaism or going to the synagogue like Cornelius. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great. 
during their stay in the land of Egypt. Notice the emphasis immediately by Paul is on the sovereign hand of God, the gracious hand of God, to choose a people and then to make them great. This is an important emphasis that Paul is trying to remind the listeners of. It's God's grace, it's God's favor that has placed you in a position where you can hear this message of salvation. He wants them to be clear about who's doing the work. It's not their great duty or their attractiveness or their obedience. This is God's choice to lay his hand upon Israel for this purpose of bringing salvation. And he mentions this in the most symbolic way next made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm led them out of it. Now, wait a minute. It's Moses who led them out, right? No, it's God through Moses. Paul is being very careful about what he's communicating here. He takes them through their history, and they know it well, and they can see where he's going, no doubt. Verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Lest there's any pride in the audience, he's saying, our forefathers were stiff-necked. They were stubborn. They were rebellious. God put up with them in the wilderness. And immediately, um, all those stories of their complaining to Moses and Aaron came to their mind. These were their predecessors. These are their ancestors. So here we go with this setup for the sermon that is to come. Verse 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Notice it doesn't say after our great armies showed their military prowess against the nations who were occupying Canaan or Palestine, um, we gained the victory. No. God destroyed the nations that were there occupying the land. He gave them their land as an inheritance. An inheritance is something you earn, not in the strict definition of inheritance. It's on the basis of someone else earning something, they give you a gift. Very clear what Paul's doing here. He's setting up the historical context, showing them it's God's sovereign grace that has put them in this place. All this, verse 20, took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. There was a period of time after they were in the land where the nations tried to encroach back and try to take the land back or, or assail them in some way. And of course, they weren't being faithful to God during that time frame. But God, in his gracious provision, raised up judges who were able to be used by God to repel those nations. What grace on the part of God. And he gave them prophets at this time. And Samuel is symbolic of all of this good stuff that God was giving them. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. This Samuel was also a priest, and he also was the one who ordained the first king. Almost a picture of Christ already. At least the offices Christ would occupy. Verse 21, then they, the people, their ancestors, asked for a king. It wasn't enough that God gave them judges and prophets and all the things he did. They wanted a king like the other nations. Of course, at first there was a bit of a discipline towards them. God gave them what they asked for. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. That's a long time. I mean, we complain about elected officials that have been in office for two or three terms. Four, well, there's been some that have been there 40 years, but that's another thing. Forty years, Saul is their king, and we know how that went. It was a bit of a reminder to the people, if you want it the way the world has it, you can have it this way. But still, in God's grace, verse 22, when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now, obviously, David was a sinner. 
And David had all sorts of flaws. But he began to give a picture of a true servant king of God. His love for the people, his protection of the people. And even in his flawed character, the Lord used David to picture a greater king to come. That's the point. And the people who were listening to Paul and Barnabas teach this history knew what he was talking about. This was the messianic promise who had come from David. Verse 23. This is where he bridges from the intro into the substance of the sermon. Of this man's, David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now everyone's peaked at this point. This is what we wanted to hear them say. We want to evaluate what they think about this Messiah, Jesus, or this one who claims to be Messiah, Jesus. He goes on, and he ties it with John the Baptist. Why is this important? John the Baptist was viewed by Israel as a definite prophet. Um, He got out of sorts with some of the the official leaders in Jerusalem because he preached Christ, but he had all the markings of an Old Testament prophet who is now bridging the gap to Christ. So Paul refers to him, verse 24. Before his coming, Christ's coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, and the sandals of whom of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So this is the bridge to the substance of the sermon. Now before we go on, I want to note something that I hope helps uh, challenge you as you come every week to, to hear a sermon preached or you listen to sermons or Bible studies, whatever it may be. There can be a temptation when you're there to begin thinking, who is this sermon good for? Boy, I wish that my brother heard this or I wish that person or... And there's this thought about who else needs what's going to be preached. And so Paul shows kind of as a model for the preacher, but also for the listener to appreciate, he's drawing them all into ownership over what's going to come in this sermon. There's nobody in that synagogue that could not relate to the history that they had as a people group. It was a history they talked about regularly, they had some pride in, and he gave the right angle on it, and he wanted them all to take personal ownership of this past. And he wanted them to get this clear in their minds so that they could then be ready for what he brings next. So I only submit to you that it would be good for us to take very personally whatever happens when it comes forth from the pulpit or from any time the word of God is open and we're reading it. How does this apply and speak to me where I am based on who I am? All those things that are variables, but they're particular to me. How does this timeless word speak to me? And so Paul sets them up and challenges us to think in a similar way, is we now come to the timeless substance of this message, starting in verse 26. That substance, of course, is Christ himself. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. The Savior who is Christ, he just mentioned. This message has been given to us, sent to us. And now we are here to give you witness to this. Verse 27, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, just like they just were, fulfilled them in condemning him. Now he's making the link back to Jerusalem and the temple and the rulers there, and he's showing their error. 
that Jesus came, he presented himself, he is the Messiah, but they rejected him. They did not even recognize what they were reading in the prophecy. Even one time, you might recall, that Jesus picked up the Isaiah passage from the prophet reading. It said, it's me, and they still did not see it. They themselves, in their rejecting the Messiah, were fulfilling some of what the Scripture predicted about the Jewish leaders. So Paul brings it all out as he reveals the substance of all of it, the person of Christ. Talks further about those leaders and what happened to Christ. Verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. Do you see how it is? He's describing what the leaders in Jerusalem did, how it fulfilled Scripture. They thought they were sovereign, but God was sovereign and using them to fulfill it. Now the audience is listening to this. And then he says further that they had him delivered to Pilate. I mean, what a dirty move to give him to the Romans to have them do their dirty work. But yet, in so doing, they carried out all that was written of him. So the sovereignty of God is still on display in all the actions of men, even the sinful ones that they're responsible for and could not deny responsibility. They killed Jesus, the one who is the Messiah. But verse 30, verse 30, key to everything, key to your whole life and existence, mine as well. But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. The central doctrinal duo or tandem is Christ and his death and resurrection. His death and his resurrection. That's what we mean when we talk about the finished work of Jesus. His death and his resurrection. That's what saves us from our sins. This is where he's going with the sermon, as you should know. But God raised him from the dead. Everybody's got to be listening now. This is a raised Savior. This is not a dead rabbi or a prophet who is gone. This is a raised Savior. This is the Messiah. And he's not died again. And that's where he's going from here. It's not that he just got raised from the dead and then died another time, like, say, Lazarus. Others were raised from the dead, but they died again. No, that's not who we're talking about here. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. He's talking to the apostolic company now, those who witnessed it. But it's not just them. Look at verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. This beautiful tie and link and fulfillment in Christ now, the substance of Christianity and certainly the substance of this sermon. And he refers to three different Old Testament passages to tie it together even more tightly. And they all have to do with the person of Christ and how he's different from anyone else in that he did not go to the grave and rot waiting a second, another, or a resurrection eventually. He was resurrected. He did not see corruption. Notice the verses. Verse 33. This he has fulfilled to their, children's child, to their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The father speaking to the son prophetically through David, a thousand years before the time of Christ, Psalm 2, verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. Now he quotes Isaiah 53, 700 years before the time of Christ. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. This is the Messiah. Therefore, he says, verse 35, also in another Psalm, Psalm 16, 
you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now, it couldn't be talking about David. How do we know? Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So it's not David we're talking about. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Jesus, the risen Savior, is alive. And he is the one who fulfills all the scriptures. This is the key here. All the scriptures are about Christ. Christ is who who's God, God's word culminates with. It's uh, Biblical revelation reaches its peak in Christ. Jesus is the climax of biblical history. The word of God is completed by the work of Christ. The apostles preach the gospel, which is synonymous which, with they preached Christ. Preaching the word of God is also synonymous with preaching Christ. The word of God is ultimately about Christ. In fact, Anytime the word is preached, it should tie at least contextually to Christ. We could open the Bible in the Old Testament somewhere and read the book of Esther or read the book of Ruth or read something out of Exodus. All of it to be properly preached must be explained in relationship to Christ at some point in that teaching. Now, the beauty of regularly preaching through we build a context that you as the audience start to learn and know. It doesn't have to be mentioned as forcefully every time, but it still has to be mentioned. The Word of God preached in full means to preach Christ. This is the essence of the Christian faith on display. Derek Thomas says, well, in effect, he was saying to them that unless they acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, they had utterly failed to understand the Scriptures. Now we move to the appeal and the warning that is given. You might say the application of the the sermon. The appeal happens in verse 38 and verse 39, and it is powerful. It's classic Paul. It's the essence of Paul's epistles in the sermon he preaches relatively early in his missionary journeys. Follow with me in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, therefore, in light of what he just said about Christ, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I'm going to say that again. By him, Christ, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He is preaching the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Not any other way. It's This is the only way. You can be justified before God, be right before God, made right with God, is by and through Christ. This faith or this trust in Christ makes us free from our sins and the punishment we deserve. That's what preaching Christ means. Declare that Christ, what Christ has done and appeal to people to confess their sins and trust in Christ. It was interesting, in one of the commentaries I read, John Stott's commentary, he alluded to an, uh, an introduction that Martin Luther gives to the book of Acts. Now, you all know Martin Luther, most likely you all know, uh, that the doctrine of justification by faith was crucial to his, uh, his own thinking and what caused him finally to really speak out against the church in the day that it completely obscured this doctrine. So it was precious to him. And you can gather that in the epistles of Paul, this doctrine is on full display. I mean, Galatians, uh, Romans, all these books. But the book of Acts, I would not have thought of that in terms of 
justification by faith being, if you will, the thesis of the book. I think of it as more of the, the history of the unfolding of the gospel's effects by the Holy Spirit, all the ways we talked about it. I think that's true. But Luther said something in his introduction to the book of Acts that made me think more upon the importance of this doctrine that keeps being brought up even in the sermons in this relative book of history, biblical history that we have. Listen to what Luther wrote. It is to be noted that by this book, St. Luke teaches the whole church to the end of the world the true chief point of Christian doctrine, namely that we must all be justified only through faith in Jesus Christ without any addition of law or help from good works. This doctrine is the chief intention of the book, he says, of the book of Acts, this doctrine. And the author's principal cause for writing it. Therefore, he stresses so mightily not only the preaching of the apostles about faith in Christ and how both Gentiles and Jews must be justified by it without any merit or works, but also the examples and the instances of this teaching, telling how Gentiles as well as Jews were justified through the gospel only without the law. Look at the verse again. Through this man, verse 38, the second part, through this man, Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. Freed from what? What are they freed from? From everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses on its own, misunderstood apart from Christ, is a book of rules or a bunch of obligations and morals we have to keep to be like God. It's a reflection of God's righteousness. I've got to do this. I've got to follow this. And that's how many of them were thinking. And it just brought them lower and lower and lower because they could not keep it. Their guilt would be heaped and their shame would grow because it should if that's what you're trying to do to get to heaven or try to be right with God, to be justified. Keep the law. You are a slave to your sin in that sense. You are a slave to guilt and shame. You're a slave to all that these rules would put upon you and you can never know God are right this way. But everyone who believes in Christ is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses ultimately leads to condemnation, death, and hell. But Christ leads you to total freedom from all of those things. And then through Christ, you have a whole new outlook on God's righteousness and what he calls us to do as a response to who we are as justified people by faith in Christ. Paul finishes his exhortation, his appeal, with a warning. Verse 40. And here in verse 40, he's quoting the book of Habakkuk, the the prophet who spoke to those Israelites in his day who were rebelling against God's message of salvation. It's the same thing. He's applying that message that they would have known to anyone who's hearing this and rejecting it. I mean, I could say the same to you. If you've grown up in the pew or you've been in the church a long time and you still do not grasp this message, repent of your sins and trust in Christ, acknowledge you're a sinner and turn to him, um, this warning is for you. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Just the, wor- the word itself that there will be people who will reject it, will jar those who God has ordained to accept it. You follow? A word of judgment, if it bugs you and it makes you look to Christ, it has its purpose for you. But it also speaks very clearly about those who will not believe. That they will stay in their place of judgment. What are some of the responses that we see? Verse 42. It starts to 
unfold after he's done with his sermon. And look at what the response is. And, and these responses that you see are all by God's sovereign appointment, as we might expect. Uh, but Luke says it exactly that way. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them next Sabbath. Wait a minute, what does it mean? They begged, they appealed, they poured out passionately their desire to hear more of these things, that these things might be. What are these things? How Christ fulfills the Scriptures. How the Scripture points to Christ and our forgiveness of sins through Him. They wanted more of that. Give me more of that. They begged for these things. You know, I think that it is true to say this. Biblical preaching that's Christ-centered, which to me they have, they're synonymous. If it's biblical, it's going to be Christ-centered. It will develop a growing hunger in the listeners. You'll want more. There will be an anticipation created by God's revelation that will make us want to hear what comes next or more of how it applies or more of how it unfolds. Uh, these people were, grew up in this area going to the synagogue. They knew much of the Bible. For the first time, they were seeing clearly the key to the Scripture is Christ. How, give us more how this works. Please, rabbis, teach us more, they're saying. And the Sabbath was the weekly corporate gathering where the Scripture was read. They didn't have copies of Scripture back in their houses. They had to come to church, to the synagogue, to hear the, see the scrolls unfolded and read. They did not have copies in their hands or multiple copies on their shelves. They begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. More of the same kind of passion. Verse 43, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. That's another way of saying, continue in this message you've just heard about Christ. They're exhorting them, keep believing. Verse 44, a week goes by, and Luke, you can almost see the excitement of Luke, who is really careful about particulars, but here it's clearly just making a statement of his, a generalization that he's making. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. What do they come to gather for? To hear the word of the Lord. What's the word of the Lord here? The word of the Lord's a scripture, and the scripture is about Christ. What do you think happens right away? It always happens this way, doesn't it? Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Wait a minute, all these people coming to hear this. They're not coming to hear us, they're coming to hear them. They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. We already know how Paul can handle himself in those situations. It had to be an amazing interchange that people witnessed. Jealousy is the motive. They revile Paul, and they go after Paul and after his message. But verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, talking about first to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. There's even a bit of sarcasm there. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. It was part of God's forecasting how it would unfold. They would go first to the Jews and they would reject it. Then it would bust open to the Gentiles. Always part of the plan to go to the Gentiles, but this is how it would come. We'll come first, and then when you reject it, we'll turn to the Gentiles. For the, then he quotes again from another passage, verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I love the response of the Gentiles here. 
those who are listening in on this whole thing, and they get it. The Holy Spirit's given them belief, so they grab hold of it. They're so thankful that they could be included in this, that by trust in Christ they could be saved, that they could have a redemption. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying what? The word of the Lord. What's the word of the Lord? Christ. And here's a key passage for all of our understanding of how this unfolds. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Christ is pronounced. Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Response, conversion, is completely the work of the Holy Spirit. As many as are appointed will come. We should be so bold in preaching because the results are not dependent upon us. God is sovereign over it all. He's sovereign over the ends who will be saved. He's sovereign over the means by way of the scripture, by way of the word of God being preached, Christ being proclaimed. No credit can be taken by us. All to him. And the word of the Lord, verse 49, was spreading through the whole region. You notice how many times in the last few verses, word of the Lord, word of God. Let's be clear about something as we conclude. Very clear. Verse 23 of the text, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Verse 26 of the text, to us has been sent the message of salvation, who is Christ. Verse 32, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers he has fulfilled. That's Christ. Verse 37, he whom God raised up did not see corruption. That's only Christ. Verse 38, through him this man, Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Verse 39, everyone who believes is freed. Verse 43, he urged them to continue in the grace of God. Grace, or Christ is the grace of God personified. Now in these last ver- few chap- verses, verse 44, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. We know it's about Christ. Verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Christ. Verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Who's the word of the Lord? It's Christ. He's the fulfiller of all this. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. This is preaching Christ. That's what this is. This is timeless. This is for today. This is for every day until he comes again. You know, Jesus said something profound to us. So we're all thinking about lunchtime. Maybe you're going to have some corned beef and cabbage too. Maybe that would make you so hungry or whatever you're going to eat. Man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Some will believe, others will reject. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. That could be the result too. But verse verse 51, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Just went to the next place. Wouldn't hear it here anymore? We'll go to the next place and proclaim it. And the disciples, what's the response? They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I would just leave you with a few questions of challenge. I think the sermon speaks for itself that Paul preaches as we've walked through it. Um, But I would just ask you, have I heard the gospel uh, many, many times but have not yet believed? Maybe today is the day. Believe on Christ. Believe on Christ in him alone. Leave all your strivings. If you have guilt and you have shame, 
The only way you can ever see that rid is by turning to Christ. There you will find forgiveness for your sins, and he will take away your guilt, and he will take away your shame, and he will point you in a new way with a new heart. Secondly, when we're sharing or proclaiming the message of the gospel, are we clear about what the message is? We're not making it more than the scripture says or less. The gospel is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection. We believe on Christ. That's the message that we proclaim. And then connected to that, do we understand it's God who brings the results? It's our responsibility to bring the message, but it's God's work to make anyone believe, just like it was true for you. Finally, are we ready for opposition? Do we so believe this message of the gospel that we're willing to preach it even if we're driven out of the place we're at? Do we really believe it? Are we ready for what might come against us for being faithful to it? Let's pray. Oh Lord, if one thing is clear, it is this. You are the great God of grace. You pour grace upon grace, then you pour more grace. And another thing is very clear. Jesus is the only one under heaven by which we may be saved. Lord, for those who know Christ, please strengthen their faith and fuel them with a renewed passion for Him and proclaiming Him. For those who do not know Christ, please enliven them by Your Spirit and give them faith in Christ so that they may be free from the just punishment that their sins actually deserve. We thank You for Christ's gospel, which is the apostolic gospel and the good news forevermore. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.